The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning. This is Kate, and welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. You know, if you're like me, you may be listening today to learn something important about how to shift from being overworked and overwhelmed to another way of living and leading. My guest today is Scott Eblen, an old friend and colleague from the faculty of Georgetown's Leadership Coaching Program. Scott's also the author of two outstanding books about leadership. The first is called The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success, and most recently, Scott's written Overworked and Overwhelmed, The Mindfulness Alternative. A former Fortune 500 executive himself, Scott's an executive coach and leadership educator whose work is well known for the impact that it has for individuals and for organizations. Welcome to today's show, Scott. Hey, Kate. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Well, I'm delighted to have you as I was delighted to see the new book that just came out. And, you know, Scott, as you know, I found your work on the next level to be just invaluable to my own clients and my own practice as a coach. I have handed out dozens of copies of your book. Thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. And now I've been reading Overworked and Overwhelmed with a sense of even more gratitude. Um, The second book seems to really hit the nail on the head in terms of where I see leaders struggling. You provide perspective and also hope for one of the biggest problems that we see people facing today, a strong sense of really a relentless sense of overwork and overwhelm. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, tell me, what inspired you to write this second book? Yeah, well, that's probably, I think there were external uh, reasons for writing it and internal reasons for writing it, you know, from, the, from an external kind of outside-in perspective like you, you know, the people that I work with uh, as clients, um, uh, every year, year over year, especially for the last five or six years, I just felt like they were more overworked than overwhelmed. That's what they were telling me. That's what they were showing me, <laughs> whether, mm-hmm. they, whether mm-hmm. they meant to or not. And um, I just felt, you know, it's kind of like addressing a pain point. You know, I, I've, I've joked a little bit in the last few months that, you know, the connection between the next level book and the new book is when you reach the next level, you usually find yourself feeling overworked and overwhelmed. <laughs> and, and that's true, I think, for a lot of people. And so that was kind of the external reason. And then, you know, from the internal perspective, um, I've had a lot of just personal experience in the last, uh, I guess, five years. More than, more than five years, but it was really just kind of super concentrated and super saturated in the last five years with the need to manage my own sense of overwork and overwhelm. Um, 
as you know, I was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis in 2009, and um, without going into all the details of that, I mean, it was just a really rough year and a half for me after the diagnosis. I was uh, increasingly immobile, and, um, you know, I'd been a runner and couldn't run anymore, couldn't could barely walk around the block, and um, cognitive <laughs> functions were suffering a lot. I felt like I had a wet sponge in my skull a lot of days. And long story short, a friend of mine, or a friend of my wife's, uh, who's an expert in holistic health and had done a lot of work, she's a yoga teacher, and she'd done a lot of work with people with autoimmune diseases like MS and using yoga as a sort of a therapeutic way to, to manage that. And she suggested to Diane that I, that I go to yoga and so I went really skeptically because I thought, like, how am I going to do this? I can hardly stand up. Mm-hmm. But I, I did, and um, that was kind of the beginning for me of um, a deeper journey, you know, in, into mindfulness kind of practices. And one of the things about having MS, I know you have good friends who have MS, and um, you have to manage your stress, you know, when you have MS, because if you don't, you feel it immediately in your body. You know, your body just is, I feel like I have this little built-in biofeedback system, you know, and so, yeah, I still get overworked and overwhelmed some days, but the difference for me now is I, I, I recognize it a lot earlier and I know what to do about it, and that's kind of where the mindfulness stuff comes in is I think a lot, what a lot of the mindfulness traditions from, you know, thousands of years back have in common, like yoga and breathing and meditation and chanting and whatever else it might be. What a lot of those have in common is rhythmic repetitive movement or motion. And um, that idea of rhythmic repetitive motion applied throughout the day, whether it's a walk or getting up to go stretch or whatever, it activates your body's parasympathetic nervous system, which the nickname for that is the rest and digest response. And that's the opposite of fight or flight. And we all know what fight or flight is. It's the sympathetic nervous system and that emergency sort of response that we have. And I think a lot of professionals today are in a chronic state of fight or flight because of all the input coming in. And uh, they, therefore, they feel overworked and overwhelmed. And they, the impact of that you know, on your productivity is really severe. Uh, but also on your overall health and well-being, it's pretty devastating to be living in a state of chronic fight or flight. And so I'm just trying to share through the book some of what I've learned about managing myself, but also, you know, I did a lot of interviews and looked at a lot of the research and tried to put it together in a, I always try to make things simple, uh, try mm-hmm. to put it together mm-hmm. in a fairly simple, straightforward way to, you know, like, easy to do, likely to make a difference. Uh, yeah, I think you've done stuff. it. Well, thank I, think, you. I think your book is very, um, very readable and um you know, I really particularly enjoy in the beginning of the book you talk about how important it is. In fact, you, you, you say that leadership is a two-part job. And the part one, the leader's job is to define reality, and then part two is to offer hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think you, your book does a beautiful job of actually describing the current state that we find ourselves in with regards to overwhelm and overwork and then really offering hope through the, the um, ideas and the practices that you put forward in the book. Um, you know, I'm curious about how widespread you think this problem of overwhelm, work and overwhelm are. I mean, mm-hmm. do you, is, it, 
is it something that you see people sort of master at the next level and then they, it's no longer an issue or, or would you say it's just rampant? <laughs> Hardly. I think it, uh, I think it, honestly, I think for a lot of people, uh, it's, it's increasingly worse. Uh, and, and so, you know, there are, there are statistics out there that would illustrate this. I mean, the American Psychological Association does a, a stress study every year. Um, and, you know, I think 50% of Americans in the last study report more stress than the last time they did the study. Uh, the pressures related to their work are the number one source of stress. Uh, I'm working on an article right now on on global leadership and you know, how this stuff applies to global leadership. So I've been looking for, you know, similar statistics from other parts of the world and pretty much every other part of the developed world you can find similar statistics. So, you know, that that's out there. I mean, from a more anecdotal standpoint, I do a lot of speaking and, and workshops, you know, with, with managers and executives and um, I just did one last week where I, I typically will ask this question early on, uh, how many of you are in the same job today that you were in a year ago, but the scope is a lot bigger today than it was a year ago? And people just laugh, you know, because, you know, 80 or 90% of the hands go up. Everybody has more responsibility today than they did a year ago. And I think that's just a manifestation of this do more with less kind of operating mode that most organizations are in. And as I write about in the book, I, I think that maybe always been around at some level, but it really has accelerated, I think, since the financial crisis of 2008. I think that was a, a pivot point where it just, you know, most organizations doubled down, you know, kind of on that way of operating. And even as the economy, at least in the United States, has begun to recover, uh, it's still a do more or less. And, you know, that question about is your scope bigger today than it was a year ago is just a great indication of that. You talk also about the rise of the smartphone, um, to use your language, as a contributor toward this sense of overwhelm. Can you say something about that? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting to think, uh, you know, because the, the the iPhones and the Android phones are so ubiquitous and just such a you know omnipresent part part of most of our lives anymore. You know, it's really kind of stunning. I think to think that it was only 2007 when the iPhone was introduced, right? And so, you know, obviously we had Blackberries and cell phones and stuff before that. But I, I just read this article the other day with Mark Andreessen, the founder of Netscape, and he, he's a big venture capital guy in Silicon Valley now. And uh, he was, he pulled, he went to college at the University of Illinois in an era when Illinois had one of four government-funded uh, supercomputers. And so when Andreessen was in college, he worked on that supercomputer you know, which was like the, you know, the Ferrari of its day, you know, for that, for that thing, for that space. And he was in this interview with somebody from the Financial Times. And he pulls out his cell phone. And he says, this little guy has more power than that supercomputer I used to work on in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And that's true. You know, it, it, that little guy in your pocket or purse has 10 times more computing power than the computer on the lunar module that <laughs> landed on the moon. And, you know, and so it allows us to be just super hyper-connected. And I think the impact of that, because we can stay so connected all the time, not just with email and text messages, but with everything, um, we, any sense of boundaries that we've had in the past, uh, a lot of those have evaporated. That one of the great pieces of research I found in writing the book was a 
2013 study from the Center for Creative Leadership where they studied about 500 smartphone-enabled executives, managers, and professionals and found that the average smartphone-enabled EMP, for short, is connected to their work for 72 hours a week. And so there's 168 hours, 24 times 7, in any given week. Um, You're going to spend 72 of those on work. You probably have to eat, sleep, and bathe for another eight hours a day, so that's 56 hours. And that leaves you 40 hours a week to do everything else you either need or want to do in your life, which is a ton of stuff. That puts it in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, know, we all start with the same 168 hours, but it's – and then, you know, I think a lot of people, they have way more than 72 hours of work to actually do. And so it's this, like, gerbil wheel kind of thing where if I just run harder, I can get it done. Well, no, actually, you can't. And – and the extra 10 hours that you're going to spend, let's make it 82 this week instead of 72. It's like microeconomics in college. You know, there's, it's the marginal utility of that extra 10 hours is not great. It's diminishing returns in terms of what you actually are able to do or accomplish. And so, mm-hmm. you know, now we're back to, like, okay, so what are the alternatives to that? And I'm suggesting yeah. mind- mindfulness is an alternative to that. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely will talk about that. And, and you know, I... I think one of the what really rang a bell for me as you were just talking about diminishing returns is I, I think that what I see and what I find in myself at times is a tendency to think that things are temporary, you know, that um, this is a particularly bad week, this is mm-hmm. a particularly bad quarter, you know, or, you know, particularly bad year. Particularly bad year. And I think you step back and look and suddenly realize, wow, there is no such thing as a good time or a time when things uh, fall into a, a more reasonable and realistic uh, level of commitment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a you know one of the things I like about about what you're proposing with, with your mindfulness alternative is really a, a sort of a systems approach to this problem. Um, really looking at the whole system that is your life, your, your way of approaching your life and your work, and instead of um, recommending time management strategies or things that really tweak that 10 extra hours, um, it's really about taking a big step back and doing something differently. Can you just describe for us, Scott, the mindfulness alternative, as your ti- the book's title calls it? Sure. So what I mean by that is, you know, first of all, I, like I said a minute ago, I don't think we can run our RPMs any faster than most of us are running them. You know, it's, it's, it's packed out in the red zone already. So what's the alternative to that? And by mindfulness, uh, again, I'm trying to keep it simple. I'm offering a, a really simple way to think about it, you know, mindfulness equals two things. It equals awareness plus intention. And uh, the awareness is awareness of what's going on around me, you know, externally and, or extrinsically, and then what's going on inside of me intrinsically in response or reaction to what's going on around me externally. And then the intention, once I'm aware, I can then be intentional about what I'm either going to do or not going to do next. And um, I think just like you suggested a minute ago, Kate, just learning how to step back and pause and be aware of, okay, like, what is going on right now and what do I really need to be doing right now um, is a really key thing. It's like later in the book I talk about the life GPS model, and that's three questions, the first of which is how are you when you're really at your best. You know, I think most of us would probably rather show up at our best more often than not. And 
So what does that look like for you? Well, that can become a reference point, but then you have to think about what are the, the things that you need to do from a routine standpoint that would enable you to show up at your best. And it's the Aristotle idea that we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are the routines that you either have in your life or need to incorporate into your life to make it more likely that you show up at your best? And it's probably not, you at your best is probably not tacked out at, you know, 8,000 RPMs. Um, it's probably something less than that. And so, you know, maybe we can talk about that later in the in the hour, but that's that's the... That's the approach, right? You know, is to understand what we mean by mindfulness. It doesn't mean meditating or chanting for hours a day. Uh, it's great that people in the world are able to do that, but most of us don't aspire to that and don't have lifestyles that support that. So what are the simple things that we can do that we can learn, you know, from the traditions? They, they, they flow from those kinds of traditions, but how do we practicalize them, if you will, you know, for modern professional life, and, and that's what I'm trying to get to in the book. I, th- I thank you for explaining that. And, you know, you're, I love the simplicity of your definition. Awareness, mindfulness is awareness plus intention. And then we begin to look at, and I want to go to your, your point about awareness, that there's really two kinds, two places to be aware. One is internal and one is external. And what I notice in my work is that often people are focused on being aware of what's going on around them. In other yeah. words, mm-hmm. what's happening, you know, what what's what sort of situational awareness even, you know, what's happening for other people, what's happening in this meeting, in this hour. So that that, that piece people seem to be able to grasp. The, the part I see missing often is internal awareness. You know, how am I? How am I doing? What's happening for me right now? What What am I feeling? What am I needing? What's happening in my body? You know, that, that ability to... Um, um, to go in instead well, of out. And the other thing that's interesting, maybe we talk about this later, is the interaction between maybe the lack of internal awareness and how you perceive the external situation, right? Uh, and so maybe you're misreading. <laughs> yeah, that's a great <laughs> what, point. What's going yeah. on because you're you're not fully aware of what's going on internally. That's right, and you'd and therefore lack awareness about how you could actually be impacting what's happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. That's really that's a really interesting point, you know. Well, well, so so I loved the comment you made a moment ago about you know what's what do I look like when I'm at my best? And the point is that when we're going at our very very fastest and our most full, we probably aren't operating from our best and accessing the best of what we have to offer. I'm thinking, Scott, when we come back after this break, we'll explore this a little bit more. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking with Scott Eblen today. And you're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. 
Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, Produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back once again. I'm Kate Ebner, and today I'm speaking with leadership coach and educator Scott Eblen about the subject of his new book, Overworked and Overwhelmed, and What to Do About It. Scott, as you know, is a longtime faculty member in the Georgetown Leadership Coaching Program. Scott, before the break, we were really beginning to talk about mindfulness and what that means and the way that it actually offers hope to all of us who are feeling overworked and overwhelmed. And you kindly shared your story with us, and um, I think that was very meaningful, actually, to hear how personal this work is for you. Um, I'd like to just go back to the conversation about... um, overwork and overwhelm, and um, the solution of mindfulness. You gave us a great working definition. What stops us? What are the barriers, do you think, Scott, uh, for now that we know, let's do it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the, one of the great uh, thought leaders in this space, uh, kind of a hero of mine for sure, is John Kabat-Zinn, you know, who has written so many great books, Full Catastrophe Living, and uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are, and those are two of my favorites by him. But he's, he's the, I think, one of the primary people responsible for bringing mindfulness to the forefront in the West in the last 20 or 30 years, and, you know, was uh, uh, the founder of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at the University of Massachusetts. There are, like, 250 teaching hospitals worldwide that use MBSR now as a modality for, you know, patients with either um, physical or or psychological uh, ailments, and, you know, it's very, very effective. But anyway, 
Kat Zen, I heard him speak at a conference a couple of years ago, and he said, you know, mindfulness is hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, but what's the alternative? <laughs> and, you know, I just laughed because, like, I guess the alternative to mindfulness would be mindlessness, you know, and I, I think that in some ways is the big barrier, you know, it's, it's kind of like chicken or the egg in a way, but I think, you know, life is set up modern life at least, and maybe even ancient life is set up, was set up uh, for mindlessness. One of my favorite words that uh, I've come across recently is a Sanskrit word. I did yoga teacher training a couple of years ago, and you learn enough Sanskrit not to be dangerous. And uh, the word is vritti. Uh, I think it's spelled V-R, and I don't think there's a, a vowel between the R and the T, V-R-T-T-I. Is one way to spell it, and vritti means mental chatter, and so that's like a four or five thousand year old Sanskrit word that describes the condition that we're in today. You know, mental chatter, uh, otherwise known as monkey mind, mm-hmm. and you know, that one of the pieces of research I came across was out of the Center for Neuroimaging at USC. Um, the average person has around seventy-two thousand thoughts a day. You know, perhaps. You know, 70 or 80% of those are the same thoughts we had yesterday. <laughs> you know, we just got to like repeat our thoughts over and over. And I, I, you know, and at the same time, we've got all the input coming in from all the flat screen televisions that, you know, it seems like you can't go to any public space now that, you know, doesn't have a flat screen TV tuned to, you know, breaking news. You know, it's the same breaking news that it was breaking two days ago. And so it's just like we're constantly fed uh, in our environment all this stuff that can put us into a feeling of fight or flight. And, uh, you know, it's the email, it's the text messages, it's the meetings, it's the calendar, it's everything. And so it's so easy to get sucked into that, right, you know, in a mindless kind of way and to not stop and question, is this working? And so, yeah, I mean, there barrier. We could go on, we could spend the whole hour on what are the barriers, right, because mm-hmm. there's so many. Um Scott, what's actually happening in our bodies when we're overwhelmed? You Mm -hmm. mentioned fight or flight a couple of times, Mm -hmm. but what's what's going on when we're Mm -hmm. moving through the day? So when you you know, like you just think about, uh, probably everybody listening has had at least a few experiences in their life of what acute fight or flight is like, right? Um, You know, when you're in physical danger or you perceive that you're in physical danger. Or even if you're just, like, walking along and there's a loud noise, like a car backfires or something, right, and you just get that start, well, that's your body's paras- or your body's sympathetic nervous system kicking into gear, you know, the amygdala, that little part of your brain that's your, basically your body's threat assessment center is sensing through the ears, the nose, or the eyes a threat. And I won't go into all the, all the biology of the brain, but basically that kicks off the process. And so there are systems in your body that elevate in fight or flight, and there are systems in your body that de-elevate, like your blood pressure goes up in fight or flight, uh, which is useful in the moment. But if you are in chronic fight or flight and your blood pressure stays up, that leads to heart disease, right? Um, for your um, stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline go up. Again, useful in an emergency situation, but if they stay up, it leads to anxiety, insomnia, irritability, weight gain. Um, your immune system drops during fight or flight because uh, if you catch a cold while you're you know, in that emergency situation, not that big a deal comparatively. 
But if your immune system stays depleted, that leads to much higher rates of infection and much higher rates of cancer, which we're all aware of today. And, and so, you know, I could go on, but just, those are different examples of systems that either elevate or de-elevate when you're in fight or flight. And so it just, it, you know, from a mental and a physical and emotional standpoint, it, it's a very debilitating condition to be in. And again, there's so much in society and the world today that enables that, you know, that triggers that. And so, you know, being aware, I think the first thing to be aware of is to be aware of the triggers, um, you know, that put you in that state. You know, that's the external stuff. And then the internal stuff is what is your internal physical response to that? Like, you know, we do a lot of that at Georgetown, the somatic stuff. How do you physically feel? right now. I'll ask people that a lot. You know, well, my jaw's tight or, you know, my neck is tense or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So let's stop and breathe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and so by breathing, you know, those even, you know, there's some amazing research that's come out, Nobel Prize winning researchers have come up with this, that, you know, 12 minutes a day of meditative breathing uh, increases an enzyme in your body called telomerase, which in turn lengthens these protective caps on the ends of your chromosomes called telomeres, which uh, shorten over the natural course of life. But meditation has the effect of lengthening them. And so you live healthier and longer. Your genetic expression is, is you know, more full and rich. Uh, breathing does that, but it is so. But a lot of people, I can't imagine stopping and breathing for ten or twelve minutes. Okay, well, start, start start with three deep breaths, you know. Yeah. And yeah. And one of my my yoga teacher trainer a couple of years ago, I was told, I was telling her I was going to do a mindful leadership program, and you know, like I asked her, like, what do you think I should do? You're been doing this for twenty five years. She said, focus on their breathing immediately. First thing she said, focus on their breathing. I said, why is this? Ambitious people don't know how to breathe. Mm, uh, true. Is, is her observation? I said, like, why? Yeah. And it's just like you know, it's it's shallow from the chest, you know, and it's so the it's the classic thing of put a hand on your belly, and if your hand is moving in and out, you're doing it right, you know. It's you know, you're getting that deep breath from the, you know the diaphragm that oxygenates the brain that and the rhythmic repetitive motion of that activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which immediately calms you down. And makes you more aware of, of how you're feeling and what your options are, and you know all of that. So, yeah, you know, I think you've just said so much that's so helpful to us. And you know, this idea of just 12 minutes a day of yoga breathing or deep breathing, um, as you've described it, can really have a, an enormous benefit. You know, and it can be so hard when we're racing and when we're booked hour to hour and logistically moving from place to place to take the time to pause and, mm-hmm. and become aware and do this breathing. And I, I wanted to go back for a moment to what you were talking about, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight and flight response. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, the, that the fight and flight response is a response to an immediate threat. What seems to be happening in our day is that we're sustaining that response over the course of a full day or week or sure, sure. week a, after week. Exactly, at a very low-grade kind of level, but it's there, right? And, and so that's and it's a self-feeding kind of thing. Without a disruption in that cycle, you know, you just go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of overworked and overwhelmed. Hmm. 
is it hard? As you're, you know, I'm curious as a coach, as you're working with people and um, bringing this concept to them, do you find resistance toward this idea of, of a mindfulness as a, as a solution? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Not as much as you might think. Um, I think that there's probably a couple of reasons for that. I think one, mindfulness is kind of a hot topic right now, right? And, you know, I think it's, there was actually an article in Harvard Business Review last week on their blog about, you know, the dangers of mindfulness. And I think, you know, we're probably getting at the point now where there's going to be pushback, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. too much mindfulness. Um, but I think a lot of people are, you know, have read about it and they're maybe at least curious about it and what does it mean to me? And, well, like, I could never do that because they immediately associate it with, you know, deep, deep practice or whatever. Um, but they're they're curious. And then I think the other thing is they are desperate, <laughs> a lot of them. And, you know, I, the conclusion I've come to lately is, a lot of people aren't just hungry for an alternative, they're thirsty for it. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can live from a survival standpoint, you can live longer without food than water. And And I think for a lot of people, they're at that point. You know, it's like, I don't even care about being fed, I just need water, you know. Mm. And, and, it, and it's, uh, they look, you know, for the most uh, extreme cases, which unfortunately is a lot of people, um, they're really thirsty for something different. And so I, what I'm finding is, you know, to find reality all for hope, like we talked about earlier, they, they take hope and the and the recognition when we stop in a, in a coaching session or in a workshop and breathe for two or three minutes, where we stand up and you know I I do my uh, little five minute yoga routine with them and we just stretch for a little while and incorporate some breathing into the stretching, and then of course the obvious question: So how do you feel right now? Oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I feel energized. I feel like alert and alive and. I'm not as stressed, exactly. And so, like, wow, I can change myself like that? <laughs> it's that It's that easy? Yeah, it's that easy, you know. And, and so, again, we talked about earlier, what are the routines that you need in your life to make it more likely that you show up at your best? And I think routines come in four domains, uh, the way I'm presenting it anyway, the physical, the mental, the relational, and the spiritual, and uh, I'm offering in, the, in this overworked and overwhelmed work, what, just to keep it simple, what I'm calling a killer app, you know, for for each of those four domains. And, you know, like there's a lot of good stuff you could do in any of those domains, um, but if you are looking for a place to start, this is probably a good place to start, you know, with this killer app. So, like, in the physical domain, it's movement. And, again, you're looking for ry- rhythmic, repetitive movement that will activate your parasympathetic nervous system on throughout the day and so it doesn't have to be yoga it doesn't have to be tai chi get up and go for a walk you know walk around your your office for a while if it's nice out even if it's not nice out go out and walk around the parking lot go out and walk around the, the campus close by and just move you know for 5 10 15 minutes and come mm-hmm. back and see how much different you feel see how much more clear you are in your thought process you're going to be a lot more clear so for the body, you the killer app to use your <laughs> idea mm-hmm. is is move. How about for um, how about for the mind? Yeah, for for the mental domain, I would suggest it's breathing mm-hmm. because breathing clears the chatter. 
Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the the vritti, the monkey mind, the the mental chatter, and and breathing again clears that. Um, you know, it, it 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 centers. You know, has the effect of centering you mentally. So that you know, that's kind of like the, the the little guide that we always carry around with us. You know, we all have to breathe. Uh, it's just a question again of are you breathing in the most effective way and being a little bit more intentional about your breathing. And so that's a really simple thing to do. You know, it's, again, three deep breaths or 12 minutes. I, after the book was published, I read this little article about Navy SEALs are trained to do a breathing exercise when they're deployed, and it's called uh, four by four by four, four minutes of breathing, uh, a four count on the inhale and a four count on the exhale. And so, like, if they're on the chopper, you know, going into get Bin Laden or whatever they're doing, likelihood is after their last brief, briefing is they're breathing. Because they, you know, obviously in, in their situation, that acute fight or flight, you know, they're seriously under some physical threat, right? But they also have to have their rest and digest response working. They have to be as mentally clear as they can possibly be because, you know, there are little kids in Bin Laden's compound too, and they don't want to, you know, kill them. Mm. Um, you know, and it's it's just and it's what the it's what biologists or scientists call homeostasis. Mm-hmm. You're looking for that sweet spot, really, between fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system, and rest and digest, the parasympathetic nervous system. You, Rick Canson, who I'm sure you know his work, Buddha's Brain, and uh, other great books. Rick and other people describe it as gas pedal and brakes. Fight or flight is your body's gas pedal, rest and digest is the brakes. And you need both, right? You need both throughout the day. And just like you would never drive a car and only use the gas pedal, that'd be like a recipe for disaster. It's the same thing with your body. You have to have this nice back and forth between the gas pedal and the brakes. You know, that's that's a... a great reference, actually, to Rick Hansen's work, and and um, I think that the the four by four by four is also an interesting, um, useful idea for us. Tell, tell us, um, we just have a minute left before we take another break, but tell us about what's the killer app for the relational. Yeah, so for relational routines, uh, I think it's listening, um, because and I talk in the book about uh, three types of listening. The first of which none of us need to practice uh, transient listening. <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> kind of kind of the flyby Early listening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then transactional listening is the second. We see a lot of that in the workplace. You know, it's very outcome oriented to listening. It's directed towards problem solving, and that's good. You know, we need that. I mean, it's probably the gas pedal of listening. Uh, and then the last kind, which we quite often don't engage in unless we're intentional, aware, and intentional of the opportunity is transformational listening, and it's listening without an, ag- without an agenda. You know, it's listening just for the sake of listening and learning, and um, that, again, slows you down. That's great. The, bre- the breaks of listening. Well, I think that's a, another good tip for us. You've been listening, all of us have been listening to Scott Eblen talking about his work as a leadership coach and an innovator in the field of coaching, Scott's worked with hundreds of clients in some of the world's best-known public and private sector organizations. He does so in ways that dramatically improve leadership effectiveness. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, Scott, I'd love to talk about Life GPS and all that it offers, another element that you talk about in your book. This is Kate Ebner, and you'll be right back. 
markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network founded in 2012 the institute for transformational leadership itl is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. the markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Here we are again. Scott Eblen and I have been talking about um, what he's calling the killer apps in the in the dimensions of body of mental, of relational, and and now we're going to talk about spiritual. Um, and he's really giving us great, simple tips for thinking about how we can begin to um, put the space into our lives and unhook from this overworked and overwhelmed paradigm that we're so caught up in. Um, Scott, before the break, we talked about body, we talked about the mental, we talked about um, the relational, and you were really giving us some great um, guidance about listening just to go to the spiritual, um, the fourth dimension that you, you talked about, what's the practice that you recommend or the routine that you recommend? Right. So I, I would say, just before I get to that, I, I, I think it's important to kind of position what we, you know, what we mean by spiritual. And um, 
means a lot of different things to different people for sure uh, but the way i think what most of us could probably agree is a useful thing to focus on in this space is to stay connected with your answer to the question why am i here <laughs> you know like uh, in the biggest sense of the question why am i here you know in the in the 60 or 70 or 80 or however many years i have here on this planet in this in this form uh, you know, why am I here? And so routines that keep you connected with your answer to that question, I think, can be really useful. And so it's kind of odd to talk about a killer app in the spiritual domain, but I'll stick with the, the, with the <laughs> one that's on. Uh, I think the, the killer app there is reflection. Some, some practice and routine of reflection is, is really valuable and useful and again it's you know gas pedal and brakes reflection kind of slows you down a little bit uh and so reflection can look like a lot of different things and you know some of that might come from you know religious traditions that people have uh like prayer or or singing you know can can be like that um or chanting or uh, uh, some sort of meditation that has you know a reflective aspect to it Walking, you know, and a lot of people like to walk in nature. Uh, I think a really simple reflective routine that most any, well, I'm pretty much guarantee anybody listening to this uh, could benefit from is a, a, a reflection of gratitude. You know, what am I grateful for in my life? And the reason I'm so confident that applies to everybody listening is if you have the resources to listen to this interview, then you have more things in your life to be grateful for than you can possibly count. And I think just stopping uh, uh, periodically and regularly to reflect on that is a really useful thing. And it's particularly useful when you feel like everything is, uh, pardon my French, shitty, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, yeah, it's a shitty day. It's a, you know, everything's going wrong. Really? Is everything going wrong? And so what's what's the, the question? This is like appreciative inquiry, like we teach at Georgetown. What's going right? What's going right? Uh, okay, well, there must be something going right. Yeah, well, this is going right. Well, yeah, I feel pretty grateful for that. Well, great. How can you build on that? You know, and it's just a lot of we can do that for ourselves. You know, it's in the whole field of positive psychology, Martin Seligman and you know, the people, Sean Acor and the people that are into that. Um, you know, they call it disputation. You know, it's like dispute, having a conversation with yourself or like, oh, everything is crap. Really? You know, like, what's the evidence of that? <laughs> you, know, what, you know, what's not crap? You know, and it's just, you know, you know, kind of connecting with that. And, again, it can get us out of that fight or flight and, and more into, you know, a better uh, sweet spot between the gas pedal and the brakes. Uh, oh, I like that. I like that example of um, almost really interrupting yourself in your um, your own story that things aren't going well to actually just say, wait a minute, you know, what's going right? Shift it. Shift yeah. what you're noticing and look appreciatively at what's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you for that. Um, you know, Scott, you and your wife, Diane, have created this approach called Life GPS, and you've shared it in your new book, and, and I've also heard you talk about it. I know it makes a huge difference for you personally, and I know that many people are very grateful that you've created a way for them to access it. Could you talk about um, Life GPS and share with our listeners what it is and, and how to use it? Sure. So the, thanks for asking. The, the Life GPS is, is basically 
when Diane and I were young parents or parents of young kids uh, many years ago, um, we were big fans of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mean, I must have read that book four or five times when it was, you know, really front and center. And great, uh, a lot of great ideas there, but both of us were kind of left with like, okay, but like, what do you do with this? <laughs> like, you know, it's, a, it's good ideas, but how do you act on it? And and so we started playing around with, you know, like we used to call it cubby for dummies, honestly. Um, it's just like, you know, what, what what was our answer to that? And after playing around with it for a year or so, we came up with a one-pager, you know, it's like a worksheet that you know, we've revised it lately to make it a little bit uh, easier to understand, which is presented in the new book. But it really turns on three questions, and getting your answer to the answers to these three questions on one piece of paper. And so we've talked about two of the three questions already today. The first question is, how are you when you're at your best? You know, when when you're really in that sweet spot or in the zone or you know in the state of flow, time stands still. You know, and it's just like, wow, this was just like the most amazing experience that I had at home or at work or out in the community doing something. Uh, how are you? You know, how are you when you're in those moments? Because there are probably some common denominators about how you're showing up, and so it's really to get in touch first with how are you really at your best, and that becomes a reference point, you know, just like entering the destination into the GPS app on your smartphone you know, that destination is actually a reference point that the GPS system is truing back to. And, you know, uh, when you make a wrong turn or whatever, you calibrate back to the reference point. And that's at your best is that kind of reference point. So, okay, I'm clear about that. And then this next question, which we've been talking about a lot today, is how are or what are the routines that you either have in your life or need to have in your life that would make it more likely that you show up at your best. And again, those are physical, mental, relational, and spiritual routines. And then finally, what we haven't talked about on the GPS is, okay, so you're showing up at your best more often than not. What are the outcomes that you hope or expect to see in your life, in three big arenas of life, your life at home, your life at work, and your life in the community? And so what the GPS worksheet does, um, which if anybody's listening wants to get it, they can go to eblingroup.com slash get, G-E-T hyphen updates, and they can download it from there. Um, but what the outcomes are about is, okay, that's what my intention is. You know, It's not to say that I'm going to get super attached to those outcomes, but it is that I... I found this great quote from Gandhi in working on the new book. It was a commentary that he wrote on the Bhagavad Gita. And paraphrasing it, it basically says, you know, we should never take any action without an expectation of the result that should follow. All right? And so, you know, we're really intentional in our actions, but we're, you know, he also goes on to say we renounce the fruit of our actions. You know, it's not about, I'm not taking this action so that I get this particular thing, but I am taking it with the expectation that this kind of thing should result, <laughs> you, know? you know, so if I want happy kids, there are certain things that I should do as a parent to raise happy, productive kids. If I want to have uh, good results at work, you know, that would be a home example, if I want to have good results at work, there are certain actions I should take to have good results at work. If I want to live in a vibrant community, there are certain actions I should take 
to produce that. Now, that vibrant community or that work outcome or those home outcomes may take lots of different forms, but the way that I act is highly likely to inform the outcome. And so it's just really, you know, kind of being clear about what are the outcomes I would expect to see, the kinds of outcomes I would expect to see from showing up at my best consistently. And so you capture all that on a piece of paper, and uh, once you've got it down after, you know, half an hour, an hour or more of, of reflecting on that, then you don't have to keep thinking about it. You just pull it out as a reference point periodically. And the only question I ask myself when I pull it out is, how am I doing? You know, it is, uh, what do I need to adjust this week? Because uh, there's always something I should adjust. But it, I don't have to adjust everything at once. <laughs> you know, I can just, right. you know, like, what's the, right. most, like uh, what's the most obvious adjustment I need to make this week? Okay, I'll, I'll, it's been a couple of days since I've meditated. I need to go meditate, you know, whatever it is. Well, and there's an enormous amount of responsibility that you are, that, that, you are, that one is taking when you're operating from a, a personal life GPS, it sounds like. In other words, you're taking responsibility for knowing what you're, what, who you can be at your best, and then practicing the routines and the behaviors that would really help you be there and doing it mindfully toward mm-hmm. this idea of what outcome, you know, am I, am I moving toward and how could that, you know, what do I expect to come out of this, you know, and, and it's a really, to me, this outcome question is a little bit of a vision question too. You know, it's really letting yourself see um, where you're going, and what you're really aspiring to. Back in January, we're, we're having this conversation in February, but in January this year, one of the yoga teachers that I go to pretty regularly is working on her master's degree in yoga, yogic philosophy. And so, you know, she just brings all this amazing stuff that she's learning to the yoga class. And so her January theme as she's leading the class was a Sanskrit word called sankalpa. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret that word, but the way she presented it is Sankalpa is a great word to think about in January as we make New Year's resolutions. And it said Sankalpa, the idea is it's not so much about what we're going to do as much as how we want to be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I just love that because that's exactly what we're trying to get across with the Life GPS. How are you at your best? You know, how do you really want to show up? Okay, great. You got that. Well, Logically, you know, if you want different results, you have to do different things. <laughs> you know, what do you need to be doing? You know, what, do you, what do you know to be true about what you need to be doing to show up at your best? And hmm. just kind of getting clear about that, you know? And Very the, much so. The being, the being leads the doing, you know? Yeah, well, we do a lot of work on that with our, with our leaders we work with and with groups and certainly with the students who come through our programs really helping them make the shift from identifying with the doing part of leadership only and actually helping them connect with the being right. part. You Very know? true. So this yeah. is a great... And, that, and that's transformational leadership, right? It you is. Know, it, you know, that's why we have this institute. <laughs> it is why we have this institute, really helping people. And and what I what I wonder, you know, as we're talking today, and I know we're getting actually tight on our time, but as we're as we're concluding our conversation, um, there's there's something so spacious in this conversation about mindfulness and practicing routines that really support you in being your best versus hurling yourself at a day, at a week, at a month, at a, 
and a set of objectives. And I, I want to just mention that even talking about it causes us to go more slowly, more thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Scott, you know, I know people will want to um, follow up on this. Where can they go to find out more about you and your work? Okay, so uh, com is our website, E-E-P as in boy, L-I-N as in Nancy, group.com. And uh, like I mentioned the Life GPS worksheet. And again, if you want to download a copy of that, go to eplingroup.com slash G-E-T hyphen updates. And um, you can do that. And uh, the Overworked and Overwhelmed book is available wherever books are sold. <laughs> It, it is, and I highly recommend it. And I think it's, you know, it's really full of these rich ideas you've been sharing with us and delivered in such a simple way. So, Scott, I want to thank you for the time and thought you've shared with us today. And I know that I'm going to be passing out copies of your new book along with. Oh, the, thank you so much, Namaste for that. <laughs> well, that one, and also still the next level, which I, I love and still use constantly. Um, you've been so generous in sharing with, with all of us what you've learned and. You do make things very practical and accessible. Um, Thank you so much, Scott, for being our guest today on Inside Transformational Leadership. My great pleasure. Thank you, Kate. Oh, it's just been a joy to have you. And for those listening next week, I hope you won't miss another conversation, this one with Bob Anderson, the founder of the Leadership Circle Profile, a great thinker about what it means to lead in the complexity of the 21st century. Please join us again. I'm your host, Kate Ebner. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.